This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. In this week's episode, I welcome on Ben Wabker, who is a physical therapist and industry leader from the Seattle area. Ben founded Lake Washington Physical Therapy and is an expert in many areas of physical therapy, especially working with runners. He even created a running app called Run Cadence that's available on iTunes. I have so much respect for Ben. I've known him for several years and he is an astute clinician, a connector, a builder, a family man, and just a really good human. I invited him on to take us through running from a physical therapy perspective, also from an athlete's perspective. We speak deeply about the benefits of running, what variables matter when you're training, safety, injury concerns, footwear, and much, much more. So before we get started, I would like you to tap the like button and subscribe button wherever you are listening. As I'm growing this podcast and we have plans for the future, your support will help us grow. So without further ado, I thank you for listening and for your support, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. And welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dr. Randy. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's, uh, I've been looking forward to speaking with you. I know we, we connect about once a year or so, or maybe sometimes more often. Um, you're one of the clinicians in this region that really inspires me, the way that you conduct your practice and your business. I would love to hear um, just a little bit about how you got into physical therapy and also just um, speak about like how you became interested in an expert in running. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate all the compliments and then the, the email compliments as well. I hope I can live up to your, your billing. <laughs> um, well, I, I grew up in Redmond and um, uh, my parents, we moved here from Atlanta. And so I was kind of the new kid in town. Luckily, I had some athletic ability. And so that kind of was kind of the first venture into kind of athletics in general. And it was a way to, I think, not get picked on and also kind of fit in quickly. My parents both worked for the airlines, which uh, if anyone can remember, anyone's old enough on this podcast, Eastern Airlines, which had a lot of East Coast routes. They had hubs in LaGuardia and in Puerto Rico and Atlanta. So we were in the Atlanta pub. And, and, and I think growing up with that, the reason I'm kind of going on that tangent is just the, the instability of airlines. Uh, there was always strikes. There was layoffs. There was um, you know regulation and deregulation. There was all kinds of things going on. And as a youngster, I was hold, you know, I was at picket lines with, you know, picket signs trying to lobby for better benefits for Ooh. flight attendants and pilots, even though I had no idea what that was. So I think growing up in that sense, I always was looking for a profession early on that would have stability. And I think for me, it was really quickly narrowed down to either, you know, law, accounting, pharmacy, or medicine, something where I was going to have a certification that would ensure employment and hopefully a, a decent salary that could support a family. And so that's where I kind of found physical therapy. So I, I um, 
stumbled onto it personally when uh, sustaining an injury at Redmond High School. So I ran track there and played uh, quarterback for the high school and had had an injury where uh, well, it was a number of injuries, but a sprained MCL and a high ankle sprain and a concussion. And Dr. Bob Adams, who still practices in the area and has been kind of my lifelong mentor since the time I was about 16, is uh, who kind of introduced me to my first referral to physical therapy. And that was to Ken Roll, who was kind of the only PT in the area at the time. He was the Mariners head physical therapist. And I was in awe going into the clinic. I'm like, okay, well, this is pretty cool. Like you can work with professional athletes. Everyone thinks you're great because you're helping them get them better and, and, and you get paid for it. Well, this is, well, sign me up. How do I, how do I do this? That kind of led to my early exploration. And, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to capture Ken Roll's attention at a career day at Redmond High School in about 1991. And uh, ironically, after this today, I'm doing a, a career panel at Redmond High School uh, virtually. But uh, I feel like I have to do that every year since that's how I found the career. But so Ken took some time and really walked me through what you needed to do. And at the time, there wasn't any, you know, obviously no websites or anything. So it was, it was actually like a paper book that you would look through and find different careers and what it was required and the GPA and the cost. And um, and I think ultimately I did some time with the local physicians down at that group. So I shadowed Dr. John McCormick, who has since passed on, unfortunately, and uh, James Robbins and Lonnie Sellers and Don Grayert. And I found that I think I wanted more time with my patients than what the physicians, even in, even in the early 90s, were having. And I think that relationship with that patient was going to be something really important to me, just intrinsically. Um, you know, when you see people in the community, just like when I have patients that see you, they're enamored with the time that you take to see them. And I think the follow follow up and follow through on diagnosis and, and really helps in their recovery. So that was really interesting to me that that was the situation. And, and to be honest, like we came from kind of a lower middle income situation you know i'm not trying to oversell the the grind or the or the the hardship but at the same time we had a lot of economic instability and so for me to go to school into medical school i, I couldn't foresee how i would actually afford to do that and i think that's unfortunately kind of one of, the, one of the issues that i have now with physical therapy is now it's a doctorate program and you know most of our our new graduate students have taken on 250 to three hundred thousand dollars of debt before they even step into a clinic so uh, unfortunately, some of the best therapists probably can't afford to be therapists at this point, too. So that's something that's kind of interesting to yeah. me and something to kind of try to help help out where we can uh, in that. So that's kind of how my early introduction. And I think I would just I love the way that you could do things without medicine, mm -hmm. uh, without any kind of injections or pharmaceuticals, at least initially. And I think that you're using your body to heal itself, which is, I think, falls right in the philosophy of, of, of naturopathy as well, is that it was it was kind of a, an instant marriage with my mind on how things could work. So, uh, but you know, after that, I, I I started volunteering when in 1991 as a, a shadow. So I encourage anybody who's interested in in really any field, particularly physical therapy, like get in there. You know, especially post COVID, get in there and, and start shadowing and get involved with it. So I started when I was about 16, and um, I'm 45 now. So I've been doing it for I've basically been in a clinic for almost 30 years, and uh, it feels like you know, so second nature, it's uh, yeah. scary, but I've, you know, I did work at Evergreen and Overlake and, and had some great mentors along the way for sure. And so, you know, it's interesting because when I was deciding on a healthcare profession, it came down to physical therapy and naturopathic medicine. That was kind of my fork in the road. Um, so I, it, I can see how those two worlds are kind of close in, in their approach to, to the, to the patient and the patient relationship. 
I, I think they are, especially when the naturopath or the physical therapist is kind of setting their own schedule. Like when you're when you're in a, when you're in a bigger a bigger hospital or a bigger corporate setting, then you're going to be kind of slammed. And I think that's kind of the unique thing about like our practice and your practice is that you're just taking that extra time. And that's ultimately at the end of the day, like you'll, you'll have a much more, I think, fulfilling career. Yes. Yep. So um, how did you get into running and what, you know, kind of what led you to that? Because was that, that wasn't your high school sport, was it? It was. Yeah, it was. It was my high school sport. So I, um, you know, I think if anyone's our age that, you know, the presidential fitness patch was always a big yeah. goal in elementary school. And so for me, I, I was, I was actually the same height I am now almost in elementary school. So I was one of the taller kids. So I did terrible at the sit and reach and, and couldn't get the pull-ups because I just had too many long levers. Uh, but I had speed and I could run and I was usually the fastest one in my class and on my soccer teams and, and, and subsequently on my football team. And I think I found track just for probably self-esteem more than anything as I could win. And uh, it wasn't my favorite sport. You know, it was kind of ironic because like uh, basketball is my favorite sport. I'm not, I, you know, barely played in high school. Um, and then, you know, track was, track was probably my, my least favorite sports, but it was my sport I was best at. So I was, a, I was a hundred and 300 meter hurdler and I long jumped and I triple jumped and did a lot of these explosive sports end up, um, heading to the University of Montana to play track and and run football on kind of just like a small partial scholarship, but <clears throat> had my last injury there. And then it was another concussion. So I had, a, I had a lot of concussions before concussions were the thing, which is probably why I have to write everything down now. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, but I really gravitated towards runners. And I, you know, I think the thing that was fun, because I did do some training. I helped train the women's soccer team when I started working with the track team a little bit when I was in grad school is that I, I found that runners are just fun to work with. Um, they're neurotic, a lot of them like myself, and I can kind of get into their heads pretty easily as far as like understanding where they're coming from and, and their philosophy of why they're doing what they're doing to their body. But I, I think this, to me, this, the beauty of, of running is just when you have a, when you have a really great runner, it's, it's fantastic to watch. And I subsequently, when I came back and was was treating in Redmond, I coached at Redmond High School, um, a little bit of cross country, primarily track, and primarily hurdlers and sprinters, because I love the biomechanic side of that. Um, the endurance side was something that's kind of been an acquired taste over the last twenty years, but I think even those distance runners can be much more sound mechanically, like like a sprinter. So we, you know, we worked up there. I had. A great mentor there as well, Dennis Villeneuve, who just recently retired, mm -hmm. who was actually my coach too. So it's kind of fun yeah. to, uh, you know, I, I worked with Ken Roll as a therapist after mentoring under him. I worked with Dennis Villeneuve as a coach after, you know, being coached by him. Um, you know, same with Bob Adams. So I think those mentorship situations are really great. And, you know, we had a really stable situation at home, had a great dad. And so I didn't have, I wasn't looking for that, that emptiness or trying to fill a void. But I think having great mentors and good role models was really critical to professional development. And then Dennis really did a great job of kind of embracing that love for runners and, and running. And he was, you know, way ahead of his time on, uh, you know, monitoring mileage and looking at mechanics and visualization and diet. And so I thought those things were really cool. And the people that, you know, had the skill and did what he asked were super, were super successful. Mm -hmm. And the people that, 
you know, just kind of went on skill alone, could compete really well at the junior high or high school level, but they didn't make that transition to the next, you know, kind of collegiate success or Pac-12 championship kind of thing. Um, so he, so that was really fun. So that's where I kind of got my spark for it. And in the, in the meantime, I, um, you know, I, my weight kind of fluctuated. Like when I was playing football, I was really quite heavy, but fit, but heavy, and I couldn't run very well. And so as I, as I quit football, I could kind of lose weight. And then I started to enjoy running and, you know, I've done, uh, you know, quite a few half marathons and things like that now. And, but I enjoy actually coaching and, and treating runners more than actually running uh, major distance myself. Although I am an avid runner. So I'm, I'm kind of a 30 mile, 40 mile a week type runner. Um, so great. Well, I think to um, going into the rest of our conversation, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm a perfect example of someone who would benefit to hear this conversation. I, so I, ran the rock and roll marathon in 2016 and um, with probably not the best preparation. And I learned a lot from that, um, but I really enjoyed that process uh, and as a half marathon. But, um, and it wasn't my first race, but I think I'm understanding now what I went through um, really can give me an insight as far as like, what questions would have I asked before I engaged in that process? Um, so I, I'd like to hear uh, what um, what you feel are the main benefits of running from a standpoint of, you know, from a physical therapist perspective or just a health professional perspective. And then maybe since, you know, you kind of you go into a little bit of the mind body connection too. Right. I mean, I think there's never been a more important year to run than 2020, 2021, <laughs> you know, with gyms closed. And I think that's where you saw with a lot of your patients. And I know a lot of, a lot of ours and a lot of my neighbors is that people were putting on more mileage walking and running and, and, uh, and dogs were actually slimming down for the first time <laughs> in years. Uh, and I think with, you know, without a commute, people had more time to run. And, and, you know, obviously Peloton is embracing running on, on some of the stuff they do. But I think the most important aspect to me is kind of that endorphin and stress release. And that really simplifies things in my mind, but it, it it's just a really critical component to people's well-being. And I think it helps mental health, which is definitely, um, I mean, obviously we have uh, a, a serious pandemic going on there, but I think the mental health casualty of this whole process is going to be something we live out for the next two to five years. And I think running for a lot of people was a great coping mechanism. Now, obviously for people that run too much, then that's a, uh, becomes kind of a bone stress injury or becomes a musculoskeletal MSK type type issue. Um, and what is too much? And I think it, that's the real question. So I think my favorite thing when I'm interviewing a runner, like this past weekend, I had 400, 40 runners. And I only, at this point in my career, I only see about a day of patients. Um, that's all I can really handle on my schedule. But the, the common theme with all of them is I like to listen to them and hear their story. And that might be you know, of an hour visit, that might be 25 to 30 minutes is just me listening to where, like, you know, why they, why they're running. So the same question you asked me. And as you start to peel back that onion, just like, you know, with like, when we were talking about diet during your podcast, the same thing starts to happen is like, well, I run because of this, or I need time away from my kids, or I need time away from my husband, or, uh, you know, it's been a way to get self-esteem. It's been a way to control weight. And so those are things that are uh, all components that are important to kind of appreciate and listen to as a clinician. I think from a musculoskeletal standpoint, what's important about it is it's going to, you know, not spike your metabolism higher, but it'll keep metabolism at a level where people can be 
uh, I think, cheat a little bit more, uh, depending on how they run as far as their diet. I think it's something that gives them, uh, you know, some some tendon, uh, you know, work to keep tendons and ligaments healthy. I think from a, there's been a number of studies recently too with a disc compression that occurs during running builds actual spine health beyond kind of the osteoporotic kind of thought process. And so I think there's a lot of factors, but I think number one is mental. And I think the mental side is usually what runs these people into injury as well. And that is there's uh, a perceived thought of how much mileage they need a week. Um, mm -hmm. I see I see a fair amount of high school runners and there's, I want I need to be at 60 miles a week. Um, and it's I'm, I'm, my usual question is, well, I'm not disagreeing with them, but well, why do you think you need, well, you know, the person I saw on Instagram gets 60 miles a week that I follow for running and there's, uh, you know, a, a body or kind of perceived imagery that they need to be at that amount of mileage. And then at the same time, as we spoke about in your podcast, is that there was, you know, just the, the dietary side is not meeting the, the demand the uh, that they're required. So they're a, a fascinating group. But I think the psychosocial component, which I think a lot of therapists don't want to really delve into, the, the why and the questions, I think is actually more important than, oh, this foot mechanical issue, you're, you have poor balance or poor proprioception or um, so I think the biggest components that I find myself kind of counseling on is volume and surfaces and fuel <laughs> like they're usually bone stress injuries uh, they're usually too much too quickly and without enough fuel and so that's kind of a it's difficult too because I think people want to have a simple answer like oh do this exercise with this band and you'll be fine <laughs> And it's really much more complex than that, as ev as everything is. And uh, I think taking time to listen, where when I was first practicing, you know, we were seeing patients every 15 minutes. Like, you didn't, you can't delve into the, the psychosocial reasons for running or why they're running as much as they are in a in a really rushed visit. Right. And I think so. It's it's a it's a challenge. But I think you know to to answer your question, I think the the number one benefit is mental or it gives people a sense of controlling something in their lives. And so whenever they feel like they need that control, I'm always interested to know why they don't have control in the rest of their life. Is it their schedule? Is it their Microsoft, Amazon, Google schedule just out of control? And this is their one release. And maybe it's still critical to run and maybe taking that away from them is actually dangerous as well. So like I think a lot of therapists and physicians be like, stop running. It's like, well, that's that's a really simple answer, but I think they still need to be getting out and doing something. So even if you're just giving them little increments of walk jog where they can still get out of the house and still break up their schedule, that's yeah. really critical. Wow, that's really interesting um, answer. And I, you know, also, you know, we, we can talk about cardiovascular benefits and brain benefits. You know, I was just on a call earlier today where um, I learned there's some genetic pathways that, you know, affect brain-derived neurotropic factor, and one of the best ways to improve that, that pathway is moderate to intense aerobic exercise. You know, I know that if I go out for a run um, in the morning and then I sit down to write, it's like I have access to so much more of my, my resources in my brain. Um, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very interesting connection. No, I 100% agree. I think um, you know, like when when artists or or anyone really talks about flow, I think that the ability to achieve that after heavy brain activity is really good. And I think I don't know if it's more there's more clarity. I mean, I'm sure there's a, you know a, a neuro component of 
chemically why it's happening, but I think there's just a, a clarity that you have on tasks and maybe task importance and prioritizing that makes you, whether it's, you know, rattling off a spreadsheet or writing or, or performing art after, where you just feel very liberated. So I think that's where uh, my, my thought, my wife and I were having this talk the other day is like, when do you exercise best? And I think, I think I, my body doesn't like to exercise in the morning as much, but I, I do it because I, I enjoy the benefits of that the rest of the day versus slogging through emails or, or, or work that you may have to do on the computer and then trying to at three o'clock, then turn it on to go for, you know, a five or six mile run is sometimes very mentally difficult too. So I think getting things out of the way kind of actually helps the whole day in my mind. That's just what's worked for me. I think finding that strategy for time of the day, but, um, but yeah, I think the, the mental side is, and we'll, we'll find out more and more over the next 10, 15 years, I'm sure on that, especially with the, all the data tracking and information we have on, on, on people. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, um, so I think there's some questions, generally speaking, when people are getting started running is like how, about the safety aspects. We were talking offline about the kinetic chain. I remember when you know, I was recovering from an Achilles rupture not, not too long ago. Um, and uh, the surgeon said to me, he's like, I said, well, when can I, when can I start running again? And because I, I was ready to get back out there. Yeah. And he said, when you can do a single leg squat with perfect form, you can run. And I, and I thought, I don't think I've ever done a single leg <laughs> squat before this happened. And so um, that was an interesting answer. And it opened my mind. And I don't know if you share the same philosophy, maybe that's a little bit extreme, but can you kind of talk about like the safety aspects? Like a lot of people might've put on like COVID pounds and it's like, I'm going to go join a marathon and get this weight off and just head out and start running. What, what do they need to think about? Yeah. And, and that's, that's a, a comment that I've been talking about over the last few weeks is that I think we're going to see the, the biggest boom in musculoskeletal injuries we've ever seen in probably May like as the vaccinations increase, as openness continues to to happen and people get out and get more comfortable running and races turn back on, there's going to be just a slew of injuries. So um, I think, you know, like when someone comes in, that's, uh, in fact, I have two people in the last couple of weeks that came in and they they wanted to start running and they were probably, you know, if I was guessing that their BMI was definitely obese, but it, I don't, I'm not, I don't put a whole lot of weight, no pun intended in the BMI, but I think the the situation there for them is like if you're if you're say an average of 20 to 30 pounds overweight from where they normally are for them since the last time they ran is that we have to really find a way to keep the forces that are going to be attenuated across like the Achilles across the plantar fascia across the patella at, at a, a place where the body can catch up to it so meaning that what I would probably start them off with is even though they're going to be resistant to this is I want you just to go walk and I want you, I think most runners kind of poo poo or, or don't look at walking as helping. Walking is still loading the tissue. And then if, if you think about it too, uh, in good form, walking actually provides a longer or wider dynamic area of stability required. Whereas running, you're hopefully you're a little bit more tightened up as far as under your center of mass. So I think it could be a very helpful thing for bone health, for tendon, for calorie burn. Um, psychology of it again. Um, and then what I would usually transition people to is uh, I do it. I usually like to do a treadmill test if it's someone who really wants to get into like, you know, 5k or beyond and, and we'll look at what's going on there and how long can they hold good form 
do they, can they, can we even get to good form? I don't, you know, and what is good form? Well, you know, we're, we're looking at knee drive and push off and, and hip stability and arms. And I don't think you have to have a perfect single leg squat, to be honest. I've seen people that, you know, I've seen Olympians and people I've worked with, with USA track and field that can't do a single leg squat and they're, you know, they're winning, they're winning world championships. But I, I think there's, that there's some thought where that would help, you know, I think depending on how long you're going to be in that stance phase, my, my soapbox issue, which we can, we can delve into a little bit deeper at some point is uh, cadence and cadence to me is the most underappreciated metric that we have all running. So for someone, when I do a gait analysis and again, it's your cadence is your steps per minute measured. And, and what I usually do, and I think most people in research is they'll count both feet. So if you're running for, for 60 seconds, you'll count right, left, right, left, right, left, right, all the all the way for the full minute. And there's been a fair amount of research that shows you want to be between, uh, and there's going to be some some outliers, but between 175 and 185 steps a minute, SPM. You'll see it referred to in the in the research. And so if if someone I am working with that's returning to running for the for you know for the first time in a long while or for the first time ever, is where's their cadence at? And I would say most people that I see, which are uh, a very tainted sample size of very injured people is that they're usually about 158 and below. And so if I if I have that first time runner and I can get them into say 170 or 165 and they can maintain it for a minute and then they re revert back to their previous then in my mind that's when they start walking. So if you can if you can run while your fitness allows you and then walk when you can't, then we're not creating a bad mechanical picture where things can really fall apart quickly. And you'll see so many different types of injuries from that when they when they start when the wheels start coming off the, off the, off the runner. Uh, but if we can get into that higher cadence, and again, you, you might not be able to jump too quickly. You have to do like a three or 5% increase on cadence per, per week sort of thing. And there's some different research studies out there from, there's a guy named Brian Heidenscheidt and Rich Willie, and a bunch of guys that have great research on, on cadence and the progression of cadence. But it's not, it, there is a diminishing return though, because you're, you're trying to maximize your ability to cover space so if you increase pace too much, but don't increase cadence, then you're going to overstride. If you're too slow a pace, then you're going to be kind of, you're going to feel like the road runner, not really moving. You're just going to be turning over really quickly. So there's kind of this fine line, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go super fast. It just means you need to turn over. So for example, like my wife is, um, she's probably about an 11 minute runner in general. And I'm usually about a 7.15. And we would run with the jog stroller with my son and I could still maintain about 172 steps it was work because I had to like really turn over in the jog stroller, but you could do it. It just was, it took a lot of mental work. So yeah, she'd be talking and I'd be like, I'm, I'm listening kind of <laughs> turning, turning my legs over really quickly. Um, and when you, when you don't have that, then you become a heavier heel striker. And I don't have an ideological position. I know there's people that are midfoot striker kind of in that camp. And there's some people that are, are heel strikers. I think really just the center of mass is what matters. So where you're hitting according to your center of mass. And so if you were to drive kind of a plumb bob, through your, your outside of your ear and through your shoulder and your hip, you don't want to be more than about a, a shoe and a shoe and a half ahead of yourself when you're striking. So that some you see people that win Boston or heel striking and see people that forefoot strike or, or midfoot strike. It's it's really kind of I think irrelevant in some ways. Um, but the the cadence to me is like the biggest thing that that I usually attack and it's it's the most bang for your for your buck as far as you you change that you may not need all the exercises that a therapist or a personal trainer or a running coach is going to give you if you can, if you can make those quick adjustments. And I think what you see is the cream rises to the top as far as like 
if you can make those cadence adjustments, okay, now when I look at a gait analysis, what's left? Okay, well, it's it's arm, it's, you know, maybe weak hip flexors, it, you know, could be um, a gastroc or soleus kind of weakness or fatigability. Um, it could be footwear based. Um, so that sort of thing. So that's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I like the, the self-regulation aspect of it. You know, it's, it, I think that gives people some structure and, and allows them to pay attention to their body and their mechanics versus getting a number on a piece of paper that says, you know, you have to run two miles today and right. slogging through that in any way, shape or form. But, you know, the cadence thing is, is really, you know, it's kind of like you're attuned to your form, you're attuned to your you know, your process, your pain levels, your discomfort, I, I would much more than just kind of aiming for the goal. Well, and I think something that, that um, I was guilty of this for years and I would say, okay, I'm going to do a walk jog program, return to run. And I want you to run three and walk two or run three and walk one. And I still do some of that, but it's really contingent on cadence. So if you're maintaining 180 steps a minute without pain, then, and I said two minutes, well, go until you can't maintain the cadence or there's any inclination of form or fitness or pain then take it to a walk until you recover and that gives you a chance to kind of assess and then walk as long as you think you need to walk to recover and then turn it back on and then let me know what you do but i don't want you going more than you know x amount of miles on the first run and then i'm, I'm a big fan of kind of like volume kind of increasing you know here the, on this on this spreadsheet i want you to increase you know no more than three percent for the week and then report back via email and we'll talk about it that sort of thing um i think having some accountability to helps for, for everyone, including myself. <laughs> what do you use uh, for, for the cadence monitoring? Like, is it like a pedometer or is it some type of Fitbit? Yeah. You, I mean, at, at the, at the rawest form, you could do like heart rate and you can basically for 15 seconds, just count your steps and multiply it by four. That's kind of a, a real easy way to do it. Uh, my, my friend and business partner, Chris Johnson, who's kind of a world-class physical therapist and lectures all over the world. Chris and I created an app in 2016 called Run Cadence, which you can check it out at runcadence.net. It's it's now free, um, as I was telling you before. So we made it free because we wanted to, one, bring more runners into the fold that can use it and practitioners. And it basically is something you set and it gives you biofeedback and it uses the accelerometer in either the Apple Watch or the iPhone. And when you fall out of your desired cadence that you chose, then it has a cowbell metronome that kicks in. Uh, it's kind of a mixture of like negative feedback and Will Ferrell kind of at the same time. And so the, the, the cowbell turns on and until you return back to that cadence level, it stays on. So uh, it's so you're, you're fearing the cowbell a little bit while you're running because uh, you're like, oh, gosh, am I, am I slowing down? But it, it really makes a big difference. And I've had quite a few, I would say probably 40 patients since we developed it that avoided injections, avoided, and I do orthotics, but they were able to go away without orthotics. They were able to, you know, maybe just change shoe. They, they, they didn't have to invest a whole lot into a huge exercise program because they were able just to monitor cadence. And there's been a lot of work out of um, the Spalding Running Group and Irene Davis in Boston. And there's, there's a lot of debate on whether you can actually change anything form-wise with exercise. So to your single leg squat comment is that her study found that by glute media strengthening and open and closed chain work that you actually don't change any biomechanics, but you change mechanics with biofeedback, whether it be sound, visual, mm. um, you know, our, our app on the watch gives you haptic feedback on your wrist when you fall out of cadence, it buzzes you. And you're like, oh, damn, 
<laughs> I got to speed up or walk. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we found that that's been, been highly effective. And another reason for making it free for us was to, we want to just capture more data and more feedback from people of like what's helpful. Um, some things that you kind of notice is that as heat and humidity increase, cadence decreases and injury increases. So another you know, kind of point to the time of day. And it's been thought about for a long time, whether it be sun exposure or heat exhaustion. But I think another thing, biomechanically, you're not as sound at, at you know, 12 to three o'clock, especially in the south, southern, you know, south, south and east coast when it comes to uh, uh, running in the summer. So I think, you know, that morning run or the evening run probably makes some sense uh, musculoskeletally too. Well, that's really cool. It makes me think of like, you, you almost are have a, a coach in your ear <laughs> it's it's what it is a really annoying coach <laughs> in some ways no but it's it's a it's a fun tool and I, f I found that i felt that i you know when we were beta testing it i thought that i was a much faster runner uh from a cadence yeah. standpoint than i was so I, I thought i was like a 185 and i was consistently falling about 158 and i was like wow this is a problem so i so you know it was, I was very, and you can, you go, you can go down the rabbit hole with all these things that we were talking about, like Strava and training peaks and, and, and our app, our app doesn't do the, the grandiose things that those do. It's really a single feature app, but you can get really caught up in it a little too much. But I think when you're first getting reintroduced to running or you're having injured uh, injuries that are kind of preventing you from running, it can be a, a helpful tool. I think from the Strava or training peak side, I do like seeing that information. So I'll, I have kind of a little email I'll send people ahead of time that are runners and I'll say, hey, you know, can you send me a screenshot or two of what you're doing? And, and that has their cadence, it has their pace, it has the volume, the days of the week, are they getting enough rest? So there is some, a data dive, when I'm a data guy, I, I, there's a data dive that's worth diving into. And then there's some where people get kind of hung up on the data where it's like, my heart rate felt two beats a minute for six minutes in the middle of my fifth mile. I, I think there's a problem there. And it's like, you know, you're just being human, I think. Like your, your mind might've wandered or, you know, your podcast or music changed. So, <laughs> yeah. So, well, um, what about stretching and mobility, foam roller, all that stuff? You know, you hear about, you know, before you really push running, you should get your mobility right. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you see as a key factor? I, th I think it is if it's important to you mentally. Um, so I think almost like a pregame routine. I think it's it can be important. I think the the research that's coming out most recently has showed that mobility and flexibility in a runner is not necessary. In fact, a lot of people are better when they're not flexible, which sounds completely contrarian. But I've heard that. Yeah, um, I think the extensibility of your hip flexor and the hamstring to kind of help pull you through can be helpful. I mean, there's obviously again with anything diminishing returns, you don't want to be too stiff that you can't get into the range. But I think if you look at a normal runner and you look at the range of motion that's actually required you know, you don't need to be able to necessarily put your palms on the floor and you don't necessarily need to be able to do the splits or, or, you know, even have your heel to your butt. You're not using that range of motion. Um, some sprinters might be, and obviously triple jumpers and high jumpers and, and telemark skiers are, but you're not, you know, in a normal run, you're not using that range of motion. Now, obviously you don't want it to get too narrowed down, but I think for, you know, I get that question almost daily is to what should I foam roll? And I, if you like it, foam roll. Sure. I, I like it personally. So uh, is there research that shows you're actually creating fascial extensibility? Probably not. If, I mean, for those of us that have been in the cadaver lab to like actually truly loosen the iliotibial band is, I mean, you could have serious traction with vices going on there and, it, and nothing would happen. It's, yeah. you know, because of the, 
Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, you know, with that, with that multi-pinnate formation of the tendon, it, it's it's super strong, you know, reason why they harvest it, you know, for some years they harvest it for ACL repairs. So yeah. it's so strong. And so I think what you're probably actually doing is creating a neurological change there and creating blood flow that maybe creates, uh, it prevents muscle inhibition. And I think people might feel good with that. And um, I think, you know, rolling out the glutes probably helps the SI joint and the sacral plexus a little bit. It helps it get some mobility and some blood flow. Are you making any kind of permanent changes there? Probably not. But, you know, does it, does it, I guess, does it, the question I have for people when they ask me, like, well, does it matter if, 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 if you feel better doing it or you feel better with your Theragun or having a massage therapist work on you once a month or twice a month and you feel better when you do that, then you should do it. Yeah. <laughs> if it, keep, it keeps you doing what you love, then, um, then like, that's a good thing. Yeah, fair enough. I, you know, I, I would like to just sort of go into that just a little bit further. You know, the, the one thing I've learned from injury, you know, I guess with stretching and warm up, it if you are doing like a high intensity sport, just like once a week, then that that can be a problem, um, yep. right? You know, versus like if you're doing a high intensity exercise multiple times a week, then the need for mobility exercises is is much less. I mean, it may sound basic to people, but we have a lot of people who are weekend warriors, right? They just go out and hammer it once or twice a week. Right. And, and, and they're, those, like, they're, they're, like this, they're like this the rest of the week. Yeah, exactly. 90-90. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So um, I think they're more vulnerable to that, right? Right. They, they definitely are. And I think because they don't have the, I guess that to go back on your comment, I think if you have the requisite range of motion for the sport, then you're fine. If you don't have the requisite range of motion, then you are going to strain or pull something because you have to get that. So like if you're like if you and I went out and we're like trying to punt a football, like you know, like full tilt for the Seahawks, like we would both tear our hamstrings because we're just not trained for that. So I think you you have to have the requisite range of motion and strength through that range of motion. So, you know, years ago when I was working with the Mariners, you know, Ichiro was uh, phenomenal. He was a rookie in the league and he had he had the, f the flexibility like no one else had, but he also had full strength through that range of motion where if you're just like a lot of our yogis that we see as patients, like they, they have great range of motion, but no strength. And a lot of our, our men have great strength, but no flexibility. So I think that bridging that gap and people have a tendency to really do what they're, they're good at. And so people do yoga cause they're good at yoga. And I think if you had a lot of those people switch positions, that would probably be the most appropriate thing where you have weightlifters doing yoga and you have yogis doing some weightlifting and you're seeing some of that with CrossFit kind of helps some of that. But I think that that would be kind of the, to kind of speak to your point, but yeah, the requisite range of motion for the sport. And I think figuring that out. So if you're playing soccer and you're going to be doing a more competitive league, then you obviously need that range of motion. But I think for most of our, our recreational runners, not sprinters, their range for most, there's very rarely someone I see that doesn't have the range of motion for running unless it's like an ankle joint, like mobility issue where it's something like to, to mobilize. Yeah. Well, we've talked a lot about this, but I'd like to just go a little bit further is just some of these standard training programs that are out there um, that people might Google or follow. You know, like I followed Galloway's uh, method when I was training for my half marathon. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I've seen some others pop up that are kind of run less models where you actually keep the volume down. We talked about that in one of our conversations uh, about a month ago. Um, can you share like what's the general thing to think about when you're choosing sort of a template training program? I mean, I, I think, you know, 
from what I've taken away from this conversation, that like cadence would really be a guide to follow. Um, however, you know, I know a lot of people will want to see like a like a book or something like that. Right, a structured plan. I, I think uh, much like diet, it's you need to kind of first look at what fits in your lifestyle. So if you only have comfortably and consistently three days a week to run, then that's probably what you should do. The My preference, and I've done a bunch of the different programs over the years just because I, I like to kind of body hack and, and see sure. what I can do. The My most successful half marathon that I ever did and um, you know, I wasn't like a world record or anything, but it was uh, my fastest time at my oldest age. And that was three days a week running, um, which was hard because I like to run six days a week. But I felt like I could have three good days, quality runs, and I wasn't putting on miles for the sake of miles and what I call dirty miles. They're, they're just they're not high. They're not they're not race pace. They're not good cadence. They're just mentally so you can check it off the chart. Yeah. And I think that's where people get hurt when they start doing that sort of thing. Uh, I, I think it's going to depend on their body type too. If you're someone who is, if you look at kind of just the force ratio of, of surface, like so maybe someone only has concrete available and they're 25 pounds overweight and, you know, that's, that's what they've got. So I think at that point you have to have that person really have more recovery time because the, the amount of stress through the, through the shaft of the femur and the, and the tibia and through the ankle and in the soft tissue pressure is going to be greater, especially if they're kind of sloppy mechanically. Uh, and you, and, and again, that's not a scientific answer. So it's something you have to kind of, I think just like you do with so many of your patients, you have to have use kind of your gut instinct of the, of the 25, 30,000 people you've seen over the years. And you're kind of like, okay, this is the, kind of categorizing people. Sure. Which sounds bad because it, it is individualized, but you have to say, okay, in your in your mental Rolodex, like what's been successful with this person? Right. Um, so I would say most of the off the shelf, you know, couch to five k and couch to half marathon type stuff is is probably fine uh, for 75, 80% of people. But of those twenty percent of people where it's not fine, you know, that would be good to involve a physical therapist or a running coach or something that can kind of maybe look at your body mass, look at your style of running, look at what's available to you resource wise. Um, I know some people that just want to, they just want to get more runs in. You know, if they have a treadmill at home, then yeah, sure. We can get some just miles just to, if you want to just get miles, you know, it just it feels good. But those people are probably better off doing some strength training and walking and yoga on those off days than they are, you know, just running more. Um, the difficult thing though, like and I've got a bunch of friends that are high school coaches, but when you're at a high school level, the only thing at your disposal is really the track and, and more running. And so they don't, um, you know, don't have the ability to say, Hey, let's, hit the strength, especially right now with, we can't do weight training, can't go indoors. So, um, here's, we're going to do, we're going to do different, different paces of running. And when most people get injured, I think is the quote unquote recovery runs where they're running with friends at a conversational pace. So it's probably important psychologically and socially to have that recovery run, but it's not good biomechanically. So you're probably better off just saying, Hey, go do, you know, go do three, eight hundreds and then walk four miles with your friends and talk yeah, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. Uh, uh, to that point, though, that kind of uh, jogs my memory, too, is, is one thing, too, and this sounds really anal retentive, but you have to think about kind of your running partners, too, because so many people, as we come out of COVID, I think are going to start involving running partners again, too, which is super important uh, psychologically and accountability-wise, but it's very, very rare that those two partners are prepared appropriately for their pace and cadence, and so you usually have someone fast run slow and someone who's slow run fast, 
So they meet in this middle ground because your cadence will actually, it's a unique thing, your cadence will accommodate each other. So if you have a group of 10 kids, they'll end up on the same cadence. Like there's just a sound to it. It's something very tribal in our DNA or something, but that will cause both people to have a possible injury. So I know there's certain friends of mine that I love to hang out with and I love to talk to, but I, I can't run with them because I'll, I have to run too slow and too vertical and it's a, a painful run where like three miles with them feels like a six mile run by myself. Yeah. That's, that's the kind of friend you just grab a beer with, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. A good. This, yeah. The same, yeah, similar, similar philosophy is like when you're skiing with somebody, you know, they're someone that can keep up with you and, and vice versa is important. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, if you could give us some just basic takeaways about running some top kind of your top favorite things to kind of leave people with, um, that would be really helpful. And then I'd love, you know, I was, I was joking that you're kind of the James Brown of physical therapy, like the busiest man in physical therapy that I know. And I'd love to hear what you're up to. And um, people don't even realize you're so calm and collected today, but you're in the process of opening a new clinic and you're involved with so many things. And so I'd love to hear more about that too at the, as we close today. Yeah, well, I think I was telling you before, I'm, I'm a helper and a pleaser and a connector, and those are like dangerous things. So I, I, I rarely say no to anything, which I think is also leads yourself to a lot of opening doors and opportunities. So when you're talking about, you know, like on how I built this or these podcasts, right, is it, is it more skill or luck? I think the luck is created by saying yes and being available. And then interesting opportunities arise. I think from when it comes to like running, the, my key takeaways is people usually go cheap on their shoes. Um, and that's not, not necessarily more expensive is better, but if, you know, if, if they're, if they're on the clearance rack and they've been there for a long time, the EVA is going to be a little worn. Um, if it's the cheapest shoe in the bunch, um, I would, I would invest in a shoe. So my current favorite shoes, cause people always ask me this, so I'll, I'll just answer it ahead of time. Is that my favorite shoes right now for, again, generically speaking for most feet, I like the A6 Nimbus. I like the Brooks Adrenaline. I like the Brooks Glycerin. I like the New Balance 1080 and 880. Those are probably my favorite. And I get a lot of shoes given to me for free. And I get to try a lot of shoes. Um, I'm not anti really any shoe, but I think shoe prescription is super important. And that's one of the first things I look at. So when someone comes into me, I like to look at old shoes. So yeah, bring your new shoe too, but I want to see the ones that have five or 600 miles on them because that's forensically very interesting to me if, if there's asymmetries between the two sides, et cetera. So I think people addressing their shoes. And again, running is a fairly cheap sport if you don't get hurt. Um, so I think to me, I'd rather someone invest in a good shoe than come in for more PT visits. So I had this patient a couple of years ago, just a quick, quick story is that he was like, I'm like, you really need to buy a better shoe. And then you wouldn't be in here. He goes, I like, I like coming in to see you. I don't really want to pay for the shoe. I'm like, well, you're, pay you're paying for the visit, which is is almost as much as the shoe. I'd rather you get a good shoe. And he was like, no, it's it's just, it's much better to come in and just get treated. I'm like, it made no sense to me. So I think yeah. investing in shoes is a real, a real important thing. Um, I think like we talked about a little bit, I think where you strike is important too. The center of mass where you're hitting is really important. Uh, knee drive, which is a very underlooked thing. Again, a lot of biomechanists will say, you know, they want you at 90 degrees, which be to you almost your hip bones like a sprinter. I think that if you can get just a portion of the way up, that would be great. Most people under underdrive with the knees. If you change your knee drive, you're going to change your cadence. You're also going to change where your strike striking point is too. Um, striking changes make a big difference quickly, both good and bad. So 
If you're more of a heel striker and you move to a midfoot, your your gastroxoleus complex is going to be on fire, and vice versa. If you go to more of a heel strike, your your patella and hips will be a little bit more uh, active. So I, I would say overall, if I was picking a a strike pattern, if I had to you know, on a on a gun to my head, pick a strike pattern, I'd probably pick a midfoot strike. I, I just think historically people are a little cleaner looking there. Um, that doesn't mean you can't be a really great heel striker though. So. I don't have a tendency to try to change stride there too much. I think looking at someone's arms is really important too. So your arms is going to regulate the cadence below. So the quicker you move your arms, the quicker your feet turn over. Like anatomically, we just that's how we operate. And so sloppy arms, slow arms, uh, soccer arms, I'll call them, where there's a lot of pivoting rotation going on, will definitely slow down your, your speed and your turnover for your lower extremity. Um, again, like I said, I, I do do orthotics, but I would say of the orthotic referrals I get, I only do orthotics for probably 50% of the people. It's usually, that's, it's, I think a lot of people think that would solve it and it's not going to solve it. And people, I yeah, do do it for, uh, you know, it's like, this is maybe 20% to 30% of the component. It's not the silver bullet. And um, so for that reason, we've always, we have the cheapest custom orthotics in the, in the Northwest by design. Our, our lab laughs at us, but I, I want it to be something that's affordable. I couldn't afford orthotics. I had many, many stress fractures and stress reactions which I didn't know that's what they were. And it just turns out, I thought that was just what running was. <laughs> and it's actually just too much running and really cheap shoes. I was running like in like Nike high tops for one track season, which. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I can relate. I, I remember playing competitive basketball for uh, half a season in those Chucks. <laughs> <laughs> you looked good though. That's, but, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we, we couldn't we couldn't afford like shoes like fancy shoes. So it was like you you get one shoe for the year, and that's your skateboarding shoe, your basketball shoe, your running shoe. So, I yeah I can relate. Yeah, and you know, it definitely like made me appreciate shoes. Yeah, I've got a, a sad story, but story nonetheless is uh, at Redmond Junior High. So we, you know, my dad was going back to school, and we were kind of you know we were had really no income, not much at all coming in, and people would just throw away stuff. Like, so I pulled a pair of Air Jordans out of the garbage. Mm. Someone was just throwing away because I was like, well, I can, I can rehab these. And I like, I glued the soles and like, <laughs> I can, I can play, I can play a couple seasons in these. These are gonna be fine. You know? Yeah. So, so, uh, so I'm not for, you know, getting the most out of the shoes as much as you can, but I would say like, as income allows, I think shoe, shoe transition is really important. Yeah. Um, those would probably go on eBay for like 500 right now. They, they probably, they probably be worth quite a bit, you know, Jordan twos. Um, I will say that I, you said that, you know, if I had anything coming up, we have, we do have, when it comes to running, we do have a, um, I founded the Sham Kirkland Shamrock run in 2011. And of course we've been off last year with the race was postponed um, uh, due to COVID, which, you know, makes a lot of sense, obviously even more so in retrospect now. And uh, this year we do have a scavenger hunt, which will be small groups of people going out to different businesses where they'll kind of run and get times and have raffles and stuff. So you can find that at uh, kirklandshamrockrun.com. And then the other race that I started with my good friend, Johnny McCormick for the McCormick Foundation is the Redmond Derby Days Dash. And that might still happen. That is in Redmond Derby Days. So I think if Derby Days happens, then the Derby Days Dash will happen. So those are two racing events. Is that in the fall? Oh, yeah. Um, it's in July, probably around July 15th-ish, I'm guessing, okay. if it happens. Um, and then we also have our, we, we do, I do a lot of work with Hope Link. It's my charity of choice. And so we have a, 
a Hopelink uh, CAN drive called March CAN Madness, which we started in about 2010, and it's been fantastic. We've done about 200,000 pounds of food and about $150,000 raised since then, and that is uh, going to be taking place in March as well. So it, it basically puts businesses competitively against each other based on the size of the business and allows them to compete much like a March March Madness style bracket. So it's pretty fun. You can check that out at hopelink.org um, if you're interested. Uh, and again, um, you know, download our, our running app. It's free right now. So my partner, Chris Johnson there is uh, agreed to, this is a good path for us to just make it free. So we're, you know, we've getting about a thousand downloads a day on that for, while it's free. So it's, it's great. And it, unfortunately, I'll answer the question ahead of time. It is not on and it's not on Android, and um, we do not have the finances to take it to Android. It's about to to do a full launch of an app like that. It's about thirty to forty thousand dollars per platform, wow. and when you're not making any money on it, you wives wives step in and say we should not do a, <laughs> another version on a different platform. Um, and uh, you know, I, I don't know. Do you, did you have another question? I was going to just yeah, just a little bit. I mean, you're yeah. opening up in West Seattle, right? Yeah. That's uh, that's big, you know, like crossing the the pond. Yes, yes. We um, and how how kind of our system works to 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 do a little bit of a dive on it is we don't have a top down organization. I'm the, I'm the founder and the director of the brand and 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 that sort of thing. But we have basically an investment and licensing agreement with each individual owner, and we've we decided that my wife and I, Sarah years ago that we didn't want to have sleepless nights of running multiple, multiple locations and hiring and and benefits and dealing with everything at each location. So each clinic is run individually by a manager and owner at that site. And so what that frees us up to do is to focus more on getting those guys busy and those individual owners can then uh, do the day-to-day -day operation stuff, which I'm, I'm a builder, not a maintainer, generally speaking. So the maintaining of a clinic is not super exciting to do that multiple, multiple times. I do love our staff that we have at the clinic I run, um, but doing that time and time again is not not, not the goal. Uh, but we do have uh, West Seattle will be opening up in May, approximately May, we'll see. And then uh, we are opening up in Redmond again too. So we're turning to Redmond in uh, this March, April period. So got two opening. Those are probably, probably the last two we do for a long while or ever if my wife has her, her way. But um, they're, we're really excited about those two owners. There's uh, Sean, Sean Brenneman will be in Redmond. He's a longtime director at ATI and was uh, ATI is a big uh, um, domestic corporate physical therapy chain that he's anxious to kind of get back to kind of patient-centered care. And Mark uh, Bama, who will be running the West Seattle Clinic, uh, same story. He was a regional director for ATI and um, is excited to kind of do that sort of thing and, and treat in the neighborhood that they both live, which makes a big difference. As you know, just like when you're in the community, you are serving, you just have a different level of attention to your clients. Absolutely. And one of the reasons we kind of like that formula is that they're they're involved uh, with their communities. And that's something I'm, I'm not familiar with the West Seattle community. I'm not going to be going to West Seattle basketball games and taping ankles. And that's right. something where Mark will definitely be doing those things. Excellent. Great. Well, and I just want to put a plug in for your website, Lake Washington Physical Therapy website. Um, it's lakewashingtonpt.com, right? Yep. Yep, it is. Um, it, you know, I, 
there's some really great information on there as far as their weekly webinars. Um, are they weekly or monthly? They're, they're monthly-ish, sometimes twice a month, sometimes once a month. Yeah, and you know, I just say that like people, you know, plugging into that um, uh, learning various aspects of physical therapy and there's more topics is on all kinds of health topics. And I think you're doing an amazing job with that. And, um, you know, also there pretty much everybody at some point in their life is going to need a physical therapist. Um, and I think it's really important to know who's good out there and who's, who's really thoughtful and thorough and knowing your physical therapy. And even if you don't need one right now, following and getting to know who the physical therapists are in the community so that when, if that time comes, you know, you, you're, you can connect with your doctor for a referral. Um, or I imagine some people can self-refer. So. Yeah. That's been something like with all the events that we've been involved in over the years is that we've never had any intention or desire to attract patients the day of an event. It's more of an awareness. And when you need, an expert, then they're available. Um, and I, you know, I would say just if I can give a quick shout out to our our team down at our local clinic, is that they're the people that make it possible for me to both expand our our brand as well as our style of treatment, and also be even available for the podcast today. And so Mandy Majeris, who's been with me for twenty years since college, she's you know like family. She's one of our managers downtown along with Heidi Beal and they kind of do a, a large portion of the day-to-day -day, along with my wife, Sarah. And then Jordan, Carey, Megan, Manny, and Katie kind of hold down the fort on, on a daily basis there and they're doing a great job of treating. And then um, one of the unique things about these other partners is it, like Joe who runs the clinic in Kenmore, uh, he and I were aides together at, at Overlake Hospital in 93 and uh, Matt, who runs the Houghton office, was my student and my aide in the mm. early 2000s. And so we have this very familial kind of group. Some might call it incestual <laughs> kind of professional uh, web of people. And yeah. that's been it's been really fortunate for us. So I'd say I don't know if we have anybody in our clinics right now that hasn't worked with one of us before. So it's very much we, we've hired all of our former interns and students and shadows and and that's some of the things that we have a lot of pride in. So we're we're approaching 90 students into grad school at this point. And um, it's been that's really exciting to me. And I think that's when you when you're the son of a teacher, I think the the mentorship and teaching side is is really, really fun. Um, yep. so and then I have to give a shout out to my my little son too, Trajan. So um Tra Trajan was kind of uh, a really it's a it's a whole other podcast, but <laughs> Trajan we um, adopted in twenty 16 the same time we opened the other clinic and we also adopt, adopted a puppy at the same time and none of those were intended to be the exact same moment but they they kind of were and as you know with kids it's um it's been a good change for me i took a, a nine-month sabbatical where i didn't treat at all for nine months and just parented and took that in and really enjoyed it because we knew it, it would be our our only uh at least that was the the thought and um it's been something that gives you a lot of perspective and i think it helps you prioritize and, you know, compartmentalize and strategize and negotiate and all these things that are, so if, when you, when you have a podcast, what's about star Wars Lego building, I will uh, be happy to be on as a uh, yeah. building crazily right now. Well, I, yeah, I'd love to have a podcast on what to do when you step on a Lego too. That's, uh, 
it's it happens very very often the people are kind of the worst than the the actual legos i think the the little figures yeah i had one of those this morning yeah um, especially if they're wielding a lightsaber when you step exactly. on them that will slow down your running that's yeah. probably the first advice for runners is get the legos picked up yeah well ben this was amazing i really enjoyed sharing this uh this conversation with you um i learned a ton and i'm sure our listeners did as well and Thanks for your generosity and for all you do and for being such a light in the Seattle area and beyond and um, truly inspiring and informative, which is what we hope from these kind of conversations. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you and I appreciate you coming on our, our pod um, a couple weeks back and people that aren't are listening in far away that don't know Dr. Rendy very well, like just, just one of the most solid human beings there is. So it's a pleasure to kind of share airspace with you and uh i look forward to kind of professionally connecting and and uh, personally connecting after the, the pandemic's over here absolutely thank you well take care ben and thanks again for being on all right be well thanks thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the one thing podcast please share these episodes with your friends loved ones colleagues patients healthcare providers anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews we tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from that. Forward the, the episode to them, and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again... Much appreciation for you being here with me.